Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek, and I am joined for uh, another Gaza update and uh, one from a slightly different perspective. Very grateful to be joined by Akbar Shahid Ahmed, the senior foreign affairs reporter for HuffPost. Akbar's work has been uh, essential reading, I think, during this uh, situation in Gaza, providing a perspective on what is going on within the Biden administration. So, Akbar, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Derek. Uh, so you've uh, you've done a number of pieces over the last month now about uh, the situation inside the administration. And rather than get into uh, kind of picking apart all of them specifically, let me just start by asking you, at this point, what is the sort of overall tenor within the Biden administration in terms of fault lines, in terms of discontent, disenchantment with Gaza policy? Where do things stand right now? Things stand not too differently from where they've been since October 7th. Decisions about Israel and Gaza are being made in this very, very tiny, tight circle, really around the president. Um, Jake Sullivan is in that circle. Tony Blinken, to some extent, is a big part of that circle, but not fully. Um, and some other people, like Brett McGurk, someone we can talk about a little later. Uh, but what that means is, Derek, is that national security experts, subject matter experts across government, right? Particularly at the State Department, but also at the Pentagon, also at USAID, also in the intel community, feel totally locked out in a way that they normally don't, even in emergency scenarios. And what the Biden administration has tried to do is they're not unaware of discontent. They know that their policy is controversial. And, and it's not just about controversy or moral Outrage. It's really about a lot of these people who are hardened foreign policy, often kind of hawks, right? But that analysts really saying there is so much blowback from this. This does not serve our interests. What are you doing, right? So the, the the top leaders of the administration know that. You've seen them shift that policy in in some ways, right? Going towards a humanitarian pause. But again, these are the, the people inside who disagree with that, with the policy, are well aware that the humanitarian pause kind of needs get some aid in so that we can bomb you more and sit you up afterwards, right? And repeat. Uh, so right now, the fault lines are still quite strong, I'd say. At the State Department, particularly, which has been the focus of a lot of my work and where there's been immense, some, some say, you know, decade, uh, more and more frustration than they've seen in decades, immense frustration. Um, at State, they are now attempting a new way to make State Department people feel they are involved in the policy. And again, this is just making people feel their expertise is being tapped. They've rolled out a new series of small group sessions with kind of the highest leaders of the State Department. But what I'm hearing, even from like the top ranks close to Blinken, is even those people feel shut out. And even they feel, while they can provide suggestions maybe to the president and those around him, they don't know if they're hurt. So uh, that's that's something uh, I will ask you to elaborate on in a moment. But can you do you have a, a sense of why it's gotten this way? Why Biden in this particular instance is only relying on a very small kind of insulated circle of advisors as opposed to tapping into uh, some of the people outside that circle? I give you three reasons for that. One is Biden as a person, right? He definitely believes himself to be a Middle East expert. This is famously the person who suggested the partition of Iraq along ethnic lines, right? So, so 
definitely he believes that he is an oracle and he should be calling the shots here. And he has a long relationship with Israel, right? He talks often of meeting Golda Meir. So that that is certainly the view among officials that the president in this instance thinks no one's expertise can compare to him. The second is more structural. Um, and that's how this administration has treated the Middle East from the get go. I, I actually I just wanna wanna ruminate yeah. for a second on Joe Biden, the Middle East savant, who's who's just yeah, whose whose uh, thoughts and and analysis of the Middle East should not be questioned. Okay, I'm sorry. I just had to like <laughs> pause on that for a moment. You know, um, not for us to judge, Derek, just for us to <laughs> analyze. Yeah, I guess so. God, that is amazing. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to. Um, although I will I will recommend to, to you and your listeners, I actually did do a piece kind of judging and analyzing Joe Biden's Middle East foreign policy record. I can send it to you. It's uh, a spoiler alert. It's, you know, not not quite what he would <laughs> no, Really? Oh, my God. No, Joe Biden <laughs> doesn't know the Middle East. What what a shock. All right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can please continue. You were on num- point number two. Yeah. Point number two being how this administration from the jump has treated the Middle East. And what that kind of has been is we are, for lack of a better term, the adults in the room, right? We are the big boys. We are preparing the U.S. for its future. And for them, that means dealing with China, right? So this administration came in very much not wanting the Middle East to be number one, even number three, even number five on its like list of priorities. So the actual structural processes that would normally, you know, have a deliberative process around really sensitive, tough Middle East issues have been overlooked to a large extent in a lot of that maneuvering. The the best example of this is that Saudi policy, right? Which again has has caused a lot of discontent within the national security establishment and hasn't had the payoff they promised. Um and the third is is I just say there is a really visceral and emotional response to October 7th. Understandably, it was extremely brutal and heinous, and the images and the testimonies, I think, really resonate with especially the top people. And and this gets to some of the discontent, right? Which is, right, so you as these top officials seem so driven by your, your emotional reaction to babies being slaughtered on one side of the barrier. Why aren't you reacting the same way from guys and babies. And that's the feeling among a lot of officials that like, we get you are so ready for vengeance. But why why did this connect? Does this level of insulation explain uh, some of the comments that have come out of the White House, some of the more, I would say, heinous or repugnant comments that have come out of the White House? And I wonder when Joe Biden says, we don't believe that many people are dying in Gaza, or when John Kirby says, we can't trust uh, any of the the casualty figures, even though the State Department itself relies on those casualty figures, NGOs internationally these are considered reliable figures. They've been re- proven reliable in past conflicts, but the administration, you know, throws this just kind of you know regurgitates this out there. Uh, is that part of the reason why that's happening? Because they're not talking to anybody else? And how do those comments then get received by these people who are sitting, you know, feeling like they've been sidelined and, and kind of seething about it? Yeah, I, I'd say uh, I'd give you one microcosm where that really played out. Um, so the day that Biden made that comment that he doesn't trust what the Palestinians are saying in terms of the death toll, literally that morning, the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem sent to the entire State Department, including the leadership, including people who are briefing and close to Biden, their latest cable and estimate on how many people were dead. 
And guess who decided? The Gaza Health Ministry, right? Without caveats, without saying this is Hamas propaganda or whatever. Um, so that's really striking, right? That like that same document, I, I did a piece today after Biden's remarks exposing that document. What what is like so striking about how that's received um is that it's twofold. Um it really affects morale, right? It affects just the ability of people to want to come into work and work on this. And and be at the State Department does a lot of talk of more resignations, but it also has this kind of surreal effect in terms of the bureaucracy because people get the signal from the top. So the signal from the top is we don't want to believe these numbers. And a finding I had in the piece last week was that the day after Biden made those comments, State Department officials actually reached out to their colleagues and said, hey, can you spend some time looking for other sources of casualty figures? And that's that's surreal, right? I mean, this is a number you know is reliable and it's also is this the best use of your time during an active conflict? I so, mean, what is the other conceivable source going to be? Like, that's just at that <laughs> level. What What are you asking for in the middle of a war for somebody, some independent source to be going around with, like, a checklist or something? I mean, it's it's just ridiculous The pre- uh, uh, as a premise. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, the only way for that to happen would be, right, the possibility of a an actual ceasefire so people could go in and count the bodies in the morgues, right? Or in the rubble and sort through the rubble. And that, of course, is what the president has said is not happening. Let's talk about, you You mentioned resignations, obviously, uh, the, the Paul resignation. Maybe we could talk a little bit about who he is and uh, his decision to leave the State Department over this policy. Um, but beyond that, have you seen other indications of of kind of brewing you know people getting to the point where they're ready to quit where they're ready to walk out because of this policy um and and i guess i would also i would add to that where you see that level of discontent does it tend to be among more senior people like paul was a fairly senior person state department or is it more among like junior staffers of course we know there's a there's an age divide on this issue in general um, you know, how, how does that kind of break down? Yeah, I see there is certainly the possibility of more senior to mid-level resignations. I'm still hearing that. And I think that comes from also a sense of where one month in, we're beyond the emergency and you're still behaving in these ways. You haven't really heard us. So I, I think that prospect is very much alive. There's definitely a generational split within government agencies over this, but I would be very wary of ascribing this fully to that because I think in a way that is uh, an argument kind of being made in the smear campaign against dissenters, you know, that, oh, these are just these like inexperienced, whatever. And it, it's really, it's not that. I mean, while, yes, many younger people are more sympathetic to Palestine polls show that, uh, that's not the nature of what I'm hearing. If anything, I've been struck by the number of kind of hardened bureaucrats coming out of the woodwork, being really appalled about this. And and that gets us to Josh Paul. So I broke the news of Paul's resignation three weeks ago. And it was surreal to me because Josh Paul was someone I knew over many years, having covered U.S. weapons sales to Saudi Arabia, where we were always on the opposite side of the conversation. Like I was pressing the stage button and saying, human rights groups say you're murdering Yemenis, you're not following uh, your own guidelines, 
war crimes up the wazoo. What are you all doing? You're approving more and more weapons. And Josh Paul was on the other side, right? He was the person, one of the people the State Department would send out to me and to other reporters saying, well, here's why this weapon sale is actually worth it. And here's how we're getting the Saudis to limit what they're doing. So for someone like him to say this policy, there is no room for debate. That's the important thing he said, right? I mean, he always said, look, I'm involved in weapon sales, but I feel I can shape things for the better and mitigate that around the edges. Like the U.S. is not going to stop exporting weapons, whatever I personally do. And he, to- and he truly felt on, on this, because of this president and this administration, that's really important to understand. It's not just about the bureaucracy at state. It's particularly this moment in time where we are uh, was too much for him. And I think that resonated at state a lot. He was uh, what's called an office director, which is pretty senior on your way to to senior, senior um, person. And he was really well-known in national security circles around Washington, on Capitol Hill, think tanks. So it it had a big impact. As you sort of talked uh, to people and and heard of the potential resignations, um, do you get the sense that, uh, I guess, you know, how much of it is fueled by frustration over the policy and how much of it is fueled by frustration over just being out of the loop like the fact that they, they've done this uh, in such a tight circle that they're you know professionally these people are consider themselves i'm sure experts in the field and they're just being kind of left to the side is there a do you have a sense of where the the line is there in terms of professional versus kind of memorial indignation yeah, I think people, look, it's the oldest story in Washington, right? The State Department complains about being left out of foreign policy because the White House controls it. Um, and people are really aware of that, right? And people will caveat what they say. I'm not, I'm not whining. Of course, I understand the president sets the policy, et cetera, et cetera. What I think it is, is a sense of, number one, being devalued to your second point, right? Essentially, state saying, your relevance, we will turn on and off. So, you know, good luck to you. We'll let you know. Um, and the second is is really direct. People have to go home and face their families. They have to face history. And I think that is a really chilling thing. And, and you have to put that in the context of the State Department coming out of the Trump era, deeply demoralized, already the people who've stayed in, feeling, okay, we went through this, like, collective trauma, we thought things would maybe get a little better. And then Biden making this huge effort to bring in more diverse voices, right? People from communities of color, raise up more women, kind of saying the State Department is not going to be pale, male, and Yale anymore, which is a stated priority of the Biden administration. So when you bring those people in, what they are saying is, am I just here for you to sort of have the United Colors of Benetton ad on your kind of inhumane policy, right? And, and they don't want to be part of that. One of the major current discussions that's happening in Washington and elsewhere, certainly, about the conflict is this issue of the ceasefire versus the humanitarian pause. And, of course, neither of these terms is precisely defined, but a ceasefire kind of tells you what it is. And a humanitarian pause is just two words stuck together that don't really mean anything necessarily. Uh, How what have you been hearing from people as they kind of watch 
the administration do these uh, calisthenics, I think, you know, uh, around the humanitarian pause issue where, you know, one day it might mean one thing and then the next day it seems to mean something else. And then we don't know what it means. We're just like using these words to say something like what is the what has been the reaction from people that you've talked to? It is interesting to watch in real time as Sean Kirby and other people realize that words have meanings, right? Because it does. It does end up with the administration having egg on its face. Uh, a, a great example of that was uh, about a week ago, I think, Dick Durbin, who is the number two Democrat in the Senate, right? Big deal, comes out and says, well, obviously what we need is a ceasefire. Now, Senator Durbin certainly did not think he was breaking with administration policy. The president and, and Secretary Blinken had just said humanitarian pause. But because the administration never really explained what a ceasefire was or a humanitarian pause, someone like Durbin, a really important ally, is then having to walk back his comments and say, oh my gosh, I actually meant humanitarian pause. So there's just so much confusion in the messaging that is making it extremely hard for even people who want to help the administration to help them. I would also say, though, look, any critic of the policy, uh, almost, would be happy with any pause, right? People certainly think Gazans are hurting. If you can get... If we can go from 100 trucks per day to 200 trucks per day instead of the 600 that were coming before, that's still improvement. Sure, great. But I think there's a lot of alarm about humanitarian pause leading to a kind of green light for a very long-running conflict, especially given Israel's stated war aims, which it's really important to remember two things about this administration and, and how it's handled Israel on this. is Number one, it's never disputed Israel's aim. Right? You've never heard the administration say, maybe it'll be pretty hard to uproot all of Hamas. Right? They are pretty deeply entrenched. So we haven't heard that caveat ever. And this is not an administration that's ever said, we would withhold assistance if Israel did X. So in the absence of those two things, I think people are really looking a little less calm at it. Pause. I mean, the other thing that's missing here is any sense of what happens the day after, right? The Israeli government has talked about so many scenarios now. By this point, I've lost track and none of them sound particularly desirable or feasible. The administration has uh, apparently never pressed them. I mean, Biden, in his first trip to Israel after uh, after the October 7th attacks, supposedly asked, I saw this reported, asked them, what is your end game? And they said, we don't know. And yet you green light this anyway without any sense of how it's going to end. Is that something that people have talked about uh, that, that you've uh, interacted with? Yeah, in a big way, uh, people are really alarmed about that because it's also really obvious to people that Israel is not going to pay for all of the, all, all the rebuilding, right? I mean, it's going to eventually be a U.S.-led asset, maybe not all coming from the U.S., but the U.S. corralling other international donors, particularly in the Arab world. But there is a sense of like, we will have to fix this eventually. And how is that going to happen? Um, I'd recommend to you some really good pieces out there. There's one in the New York Times from Tom Warwick, who led uh, post-Iraq invasion planning at the State Department before Rumsfeld kicked him out. So there are kind of these foreign policy eminences coming out and saying, let's talk about this. But certainly my sense, talking to people on the inside, is that day after planning, is not yet happening. And in fact, many people are kind of alarmed it's not yet happening. I do want to want to get into our friend Brett McGurk, but maybe we could talk um, a little bit about you, something you alluded to earlier, how 
the State Department in particular is managing the discontent. And you mentioned they've kind of gone on these, you know, kind of small group meetings. It sounds like they're doing a lot of like, we hear you, we see you, uh, but we're not going to listen to you or do anything that you uh, recommend. But we do hear you and see you kind of stuff. Has there been any... Uh, anything else that they've tried to to mollify people? Um, and do you think that the awareness that there is unhappiness, uh, I think you, you said you, we've seen some rhetorical shifts, but maybe you could talk about what you've seen from the administration that, that relates to some of the discontent you've heard about. Yeah, I think around the, the moment of the crowd invasion on October 27th, you suddenly saw a flurry of stories saying U.S. officials tell us that they told Israel not to do this, right? Which is interesting. So that certainly to me looked like the administration kind of trying to do a little PR because obviously, you know, we, it, we could also all just see you tell Israel not to do this on camera. You know, it's, it's interesting for you to tell us you did it. In terms of kind of getting, getting input and making it more meaningful, um, I think some people at the State Department are serious about sending it further up. But because of the interagency friction here, and especially the sense that the NSC in particular is being quite imperious with other parts of government, uh, not just the State Department, that that may not be enough, right? And it may just continue being this extended period of knives out, nothing getting accomplished, right? And, and to your point about we hear you, one of the quotes that really sucked, sucked me from someone I heard veteran kind of career official was they are dealing with this as so you know well you're affected because you're jewish and you're affected because you're arab so you know we hear you here's like a session for that and a session for this and people are saying no we are affected because we are like hearing christopher ray the fbi director say that the consequence of this conflict could be a whole range of new threats inside the u.s and regionally you know that's what's affecting us all right let's talk about uh, our friend Brett McGurk, the man who has advised the last four U.S. presidents on Middle East policy. And I think if there's one thing we can say about the last four administrations, it is that their Middle East policies have been uniformly just mwah, perfect, uh, infallible. So who is Brett McGurk and why should more people know his name? Brett McGurk. Why should we go? Brett McGurk. Uh came up like many ambitious young men did in the Bush administration's invasion and that occupation of Iraq, right? He was a very ambitious civil servant who sought more and more power, kind of knifing people along the way, but also being really good at going further and further up the foreign policy chain. So really good at making strong connections with bosses, at being the person who was heard in the room, and at kind of saying, don't listen to those folks. I'll tell you how to get things done. Um, so in reporting about Brett, what I understood is uh, he is, quote, what well, one person told me, the best bureaucrat they've ever seen with the worst foreign policy judgment they've ever seen, right? So he's very good at the system. He went up through Bush and Obama's, in Obama's administration, he held work on counter-extremism, the ISIS fight, uh, and then was there the Trump administration talking about all that. And then had this kind of public resignation, right, where he said, my conscience has been hurt by President Trump's abandonment of the Syrian Kurds. And so he became something of a folk hero as well. President Biden brought him back in. He's now a Middle East coordinator, which is a hugely powerful role 
no one knows about at the White House. And what's just important to think about with Brett Murkoff's trajectory is by looking at an Iraq policy that led to the rise of ISIS. He was then called in to manage the U.S. fight against ISIS. And then, you know, President Trump declared victory against ISIS and then abandoned the Kurds, which Brett Murkoff didn't stop. And now he's running the whole Middle East. Uh, his priority in the Biden administration has very much been their relationship with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman um, and other power players. There's a really interesting parallel I, uh, some people have drawn to Jared Kushner and the portfolio that he held in the Trump era and kind of how McGurk understands his role now. If there's an overarching kind of um, theme to, to the way McGurk views the region and the way he's advised these last four administrations, what would you, uh, what would you say it is? It's a, it's a view that really downplays the importance of the populations in the region. I mean, that's consistent. It's a view that says we will find managers, trusted lieutenants, trusted advisors, autocratic as they might be, you know, short-termists as they might be, damaging in the long run. It's very much that. So McGurk really likes being in, in big meetings with power players, being photographed with MBS. But consistently what I've heard is, is he said, I don't want to talk about this like long-term development thing. I don't want to talk about nation building. And I think that's a really important piece of this, right? Because President Biden definitely was elected talking about endless, endless wars, talking about pulling the U.S. out of intractable conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, whatever. And he did pull out of Afghanistan. I think the way McGurk has linked his long-standing views to Biden's perspective and so made himself super influential over Biden is in saying, I will keep you out of war in the Middle East. We'll keep a lid on it. We'll just ignore all these people and these autocrats will take care of it for us, right? So whether that's MBS, whether that's CC, and that's where McGurk's policy is really kind of... A, a lot of people say responsible for the October 7th attack, right? In terms of saying... We don't have to care about the Palestinian people. We don't have to care about this long-running conflict. We'll deal with whatever Israeli leader is there, and we'll become we'll make Israel friends with Saudi Arabia. It'll all be fine. I think that's that's the the fundamental thing to me because this has been uh, the the Likudnik line, the Netanyahu line for twenty years now. That it doesn't matter. The Palestinians are irrelevant. We can do the Abraham Accords. Look at all these Arab countries that want to be. Uh, want to normalize relations with Israel and don't care about the Palestinians. Uh, you know, that that normalization was always predicated on first there has to be a resolution to the Palestinian crisis, but not anymore. We've broken through. We can do deals. And the Biden administration came in presumably with a critique of the way the Trump administration ran foreign policy and yet adopted this particular piece of it wholesale. And I don't know if that's McGurk or if it's, you know, broader than that. But instead of saying this was a really bad idea, maybe we should go back and kind of work on this. They said, no, no, let's extend it to Saudi Arabia. Let's get the big plum. And if you read, uh, you know, there was just a piece, I think, yesterday in The New York Times where they uh, had interviewed uh, Hamas, you know, political officials over, you know, outside of Gaza, uh, overseas, who said, you know, this is motivated in large part by the idea that the October 7th attacks were motivated in large part by the idea that the Palestinian issue was slipping away, was slipping out of public consciousness, and there was nothing else to do but but make some kind of big splash 
to get it front and center again. And I, I, so yeah, maybe you can, you can sort of elaborate on that point, why that's so relevant to, to what happened here. Hugely, it's hugely relevant, you know, in, because it's going back to this idea of adults in a row, we are coming back, we're going to fix U.S. foreign policy, which was very much the Biden team's approach because Jake Sullivan, to some extent, Tony Blinken, others really wanted to focus their time on China and then Ukraine and these other issues. McGurk's influence grew and grew and grew, right? And to the point where he almost single-handedly arranged the president's trip to Saudi Arabia, which is a huge coup for someone who was a minor bureaucrat 15 years ago, right? What I think now is so interesting and, and I'm going to be tracking is do they actually abandon that policy? Do they realize that there's a problem there? And it's not my sense yet that that's happening. Um, McGurk is also understood to be very close to some important players who other listeners might not know about. Um, not just MBS, but figures like Yusuf al who is the UAE ambassador in Washington, someone else I profiled many years ago. And they share a very similar vision of the region as well, right? But that vision in a post-October 7 scenario doesn't work as well. Uh, and someone was explaining this to me really well yesterday, they said for two reasons. Number one, Israel does not look like this, you know, paragon of strength that all these Arab states thought they could suddenly be friends with and, and rely on without the US. And number two, because you've seen this tremendous outpouring of support that's shown people across the region and, and globally that it's not just about 2.2 million people in Gaza. This really has resonance with tens, if not maybe hundreds of millions of people, including, importantly, right, the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people whose votes in Georgia, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, could decide whether Biden keeps the presidency. So that's a real question of whether, you know, McGurk has heard the president's re-election. I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, Akbar Shahid Ahmed, HuffPost. Thank you for the work that you've been doing. It's been uh, must-read stuff. Folks, check out uh, check out his work. We'll put up your author page, a link to your author page uh, at HuffPost. Thanks again for coming on, and I'm sure we will have uh, plenty of reason to, to have you back to keep discussing this stuff. Thanks a lot, Derek. Thanks. 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 Thanks.